It is a privilege to be here with all of you on God's holy Sabbath day. I do bring you greetings from around 400 of your brethren in the UK and in Europe. Well, you may have heard the saying before, the thin edge of the wedge. Now, I had never heard that saying before five years ago uh, when we moved over to England. And I had to kind of think about it a little bit and say, what does that mean? <laughs> and what came to mind was whenever uh, we were in Wisconsin, uh, pastoring congregations up in Wisconsin and Minnesota and southern Ontario, it's cold in Wisconsin in the wintertime. Maybe some of you know that. We chopped a lot of wood. A lot of wood. (laughs) And we did that as a family. We had some big oak trees on the land and and they were dead. And I asked the uh, landlord if we could go ahead and cut those down. And we got permission and I cut down two massive oak trees. And... uh, One of the members there was kind enough to let me borrow uh, a 32-ton log splitter. And we would cut these trees up into large sections and roll them over to the log splitter, and we would set them in there, and this hydraulic pump would come against that log. And all the action really happened where the wedge was located. You have this wedge, and there's this thin edge. And no matter how big the log, it could take it could take pretty big logs. And that wedge would set right up against that log, and as soon as you put pressure into it, pop. The log would come apart. And you could just do that over and over, and we stacked up, like I said, a lot of firewood. But I recognized how... How much happens at that thin edge of the wedge? Negativity in the form of discouragement is like this wedge. And it's a device of Satan that he uses against us. Discouragement opens the way for really all of Satan's other devices. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. Breaking into the thought here, but Paul writes, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Paul says that we should not be ignorant of Satan's devices. And we'll consider some of those a little later on. But first, uh, let's go back to Numbers. Book of Numbers, the 11th chapter. Numbers chapter 11, and beginning in verse 1. Numbers chapter 11 and verse 1. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Eternal. 
for the eternal heard it. God hears everything. And his anger was aroused, so the fire of the eternal burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. I think that's of note, the outskirts of the camp. You know, we project that forward to the modern-day church of God, uh, this New Testament church of God, and it says something about where we should be in the camp. <laughs> we need to be in the center of what God is doing. And there are ways we do that. There are ways we do that. We can talk about those as we move forward. Verse 2. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed, we know that Moses was a type of, of Christ, and that just as Christ is our intercessor in heaven, sitting at the Father's right hand, so Moses was making intercession, and he did on numerous occasions for the children of Israel. Moses prayed to the Eternal, and the fire was quenched. And so he called the name of the place Tabera, or burning, because the fire of the Eternal had burned among them. And now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. They lusted, they coveted. And so the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely. That's interesting. They had been in bondage. Uh, We romanticize the past and we romanticize the future. Somehow the present doesn't take on that same attribute so often. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. There's nothing but this incredible miracle that happens every day. (laughs) They really needed to be appreciative of what God was doing. Verse 10. Verse 10. And then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Eternal was greatly aroused. And Moses also was displeased. Verses 11 through 15 are known as Moses' lament. Verse 11, So Moses said to the Eternal, Why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? On me. Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now, if I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. Moses was, needless to say, discouraged. 
discouraged. What was God's response? Stay tuned. We'll come back to that. But let's go forward now to the New Testament. Let's go to 1 John. 1 John. You know, the people were craving. They had intense craving. They were lusting. They were coveting. And it was displeasing to God. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Just thinking, we're going to just continue on. Life does have an end if we don't do what God asks us to do, to do his will, to please him. This tells us there's a battle to fight, brethren. These things shown here are not of God, but they can affect us just as they affected ancient Israel. And we are wandering in a modern-day wilderness. And we're heading into dangerous and momentous times. As a church, we're living, we're striving to do God's work at the end of this age. To truly be pleasing to Him. How can we, as God's people, combat Satan's devices, those devices that we're not to be ignorant of. How can we be victorious in the spiritual battles we face and will face in the future? If you'd like a title for the sermon, it is Spiritual Combat. Spiritual Combat. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Now we know we don't go and take part in military service. We don't engage in warfare and physical sense. In verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. That can mean vain imaginations. Certainly the vain imaginations of others and at times maybe even our own. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And we don't take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Eternal. And so we're not warring against other people. 
when we are made perfect, when we're made perfect, then we'll be able to judge rightly. Then we'll be able to know the hearts of men like Jesus Christ did. He had that perception. He knew when the Pharisees were thinking certain thoughts. And he would no doubt get their attention by saying the very thoughts of their heart out loud. Our warfare is not carnal. It's not physical battles that we're fighting. It's all spiritual. It's all spiritual. In 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. Chapter 1. And in verse 18. This is the Apostle Paul and he's strengthening the young evangelist Timothy. He says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy. And he was a son uh, in the faith in that way. According to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience. Having faith and a good conscience. You're clear. You're blameless in that way. You're pleasing God. You're doing His will. Which some, having rejected... They went against their conscience. They went against the faith that was once delivered for all. Concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, Alexander the coppersmith, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. The Apostle Paul mentions six individuals by name who had done great harm to the church to him. Some have suffered shipwreck because they began losing spiritual battles. One loss led to another, led to another, and so on. You, know, you remember that thin edge of the wedge. Once that, once Satan has that thin edge of the wedge. He's got an end. And that can open you up to all the other devices. The book by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, it was published in German in 1946 and into English in 1959. It discusses how mankind can find meaning and purpose for their life no matter what circumstances they may face. Viktor Frankl survived Auschwitz, but lost in only a matter of minutes his father, his mother, his brother, and his wife in the camps. Only he and one sister survived. It's a powerful book with a powerful message of survival. Survival under extreme pressure, duress, and intolerable conditions. In the book, he discusses the last of human freedoms, which he describes as the ability to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances. I'm reminded of a member in the UK 
who has suffered the loss of her mother, her brother, her son, and her husband. Her husband has suffered from a severe and debilitating stroke. He's still living. He's still in care at this time. But all this happened. All this came upon her within the span of about a year to a year and a half. It's been very difficult. Very difficult for her. Very difficult for her family. You know, there's an attitude of faith and courage that, frankly, I don't know that I would have uh, presently at this time to muster. Would all those things come upon me? It's a wonderful example of an attitude of faith and courage in extreme circumstances. She's been fighting battles. She's been fighting a lot of battles. Now, most of us have not and may never have to face these kinds of extreme circumstances. But there are times when it seems like the walls of our lives are closing in. And we can feel trapped. We can feel alone. Remember Moses? Do I have to bear these people alone? And these are the times we have to fight the good fight. Not let down. Not give up. But that means when other people are involved in the circumstances that we let God fight our battles for us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't take vengeance and Revenge and all these kinds of things into our own hands. We don't try to hurt others. We're called to love. We're called to show outgoing concern. We're called to forgive. We're called to edify and build up and encourage one another. Let's go back. What was God's response? To Moses' despair and his desperate cry for help. In Numbers, Numbers 11, Numbers chapter 11 and verse 16. Numbers chapter 11 and verse 16. So the Eternal said to Moses, straighten up, get your act together, change your attitude. No, it was... This gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and put the same upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you. You're not alone. You need help. And help is coming. That you may not bear it yourself alone. The lesson, brethren, is God always provides. 
We may not know how God's going to provide, but He will. God will always provide because He's kind, because He loves us. He loves us. In 1 Samuel 17 and verse 47, I'll just tell you, it says, The battle is the eternal's. That was the time when David was coming up against the giant, Goliath. That was David's attitude. The battle is the eternal's. We don't have to fight our own battle. He said, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Well, then the weight lifts. And we just look and say, I wonder what God's going to do in this situation. In Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. This is Moses giving instruction. He's kind of rehearsing what happened in the past. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. And he was giving them the the rundown of of the historical, uh, historically significant events of their past. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 20. And I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the eternal your God is giving us. Look, the eternal your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. As the eternal God of your fathers has spoken to you, do not fear or be discouraged. Why make that that comment? Why make that comment? Well, because... That fear, that discouragement, that allowing the negativity in is the thin edge of the wedge. You know, that's what the difficulty was whenever that happened in in the past. Every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us. Let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. Verse 23, the plan pleased me well. This sounds good. Go out. Spy out the land. So I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe. In uh, verse 26, let's skip down a little bit. In verse 26, nevertheless, you would not go up they came back, they gave that, that bad uh, report. You would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the eternal your God. And you complained in your tents. You complained in your tents. Now, sometimes we can complain openly. <laughs> and everyone kind of hears it and says, well, that, that's, a, that's a complaint. But sometimes we can complain behind closed doors. And we can think, nobody's going to hear this. Nobody's going to know. And yet God hears it. God hears our complaints. And he said, because the eternal hates us. Now, that is an accusation made against God that is completely baseless. They were not judging with righteous judgment. They were not in an attitude Recognize God's love, God's provision all through that time. 
He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Is that why God brings the trials upon us? Is that his purpose? Why things come against us to destroy us? Well, not the God that I serve, not the God that I know, not the God that you know and serve. We face these challenges so that we can get better, so that we can grow in character, and so that we can learn to please him and do his will even more. Verse 28, where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts. It was the very thing that was to be avoided. And when they came back with that bad report, there was discouragement in the camp. Saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim. They are there. And so... Those are the giants. Years later, David faced a giant. And he said, the battle is the eternals. But what if the attitude would have been here? That same attitude, the battle is the eternals. It doesn't, you know, when you look at chapter 1 and verse 2, it says it's 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Sair to Kadesh Barnea. 11 day journey began, uh, became... Uh, a 40-year wandering. Is our attitude important? It sure is. Verse 29, Then I said to you, Do not be terrified or afraid of them. The eternal your God, who goes before you. Had God spied out the land before the spies got there? Did he know what was there? Yes. He'd already been there. He will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Brethren, God will fight for us. You and I must allow God to fight our battles for us. We must rely wholly on his power, his might, and his loving concern for each of us. He will fight our battles if we're seeking to please him and do his will. Now, I mentioned earlier about the devices of Satan, those ones that we're not to be ignorant of. The ones that are allowed in, if that thin edge of the wedge gets a, an opening in us. On the lcg.org website, in the study topic, Know Your Adversary, Uh, It was written by uh, Dr. Douglas Winnale, and he states the following, quote, Satan may be clever and deceptive, but God has given us warnings, instructions, examples, and a special weapon for combating Satan's devices. Jesus warned repeatedly about being deceived. Paul informs us that Satan will even use ministers professing to be Christians to deceive people. Both James and Peter stress the importance of being able to recognize and resist Satan's deceptive schemes. When we sense our attitude becoming fearful, doubtful, accusative, angry, resentful, jealous, 
lustful, we need to be alert to the source of those thoughts and begin directing our minds in a different direction. If we get carried away by some new doctrinal idea or prophetic speculation or our own theological idea, we are ripe for Satan's deceptive activities. If we nurture feelings of unjust treatment or if we become resentful of godly constituted authority in the family, in the church, or in society, we will be vulnerable to Satan's attacks. If we become overly focused on our feelings and ourselves, we could be on dangerous ground. We must remain alert to the battle that goes on in our minds. End of quote. Moses became overly concerned with the self. You can read that. I, me, and my. He felt alone. It was his feeling. But Dr. Winnell mentions a special weapon. That special weapon, God's Holy Spirit. It's a weapon we have against the devices that the Apostle Paul says we're not to be ignorant of. And those devices that Dr. Winnell provides here. In 2 Timothy... 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, that is theopneustos, is divinely breathed, or it can mean divinely breathed in. God certainly breathes these words, but when we read them and we have God's spirit, we also breathe those divine words in. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete or mature. We're to bring every thought under subjection to Christ, to that obedience. And that's how we grow in conversion to be mature, to become complete. And we all want that. Thoroughly equipped for every good work, arming ourselves with God's word is vital. It is the sword of the spirit, the only offensive weapon that is spoken about in Ephesians chapter six, the armor of God. And I hope we're asking for God's spirit each day. If you ask for God's spirit, he will give it. We know from Acts 5.32 that God gives his spirit to those who obey him. And if we ask, we will receive. And we don't have to just do it in the morning. We can ask for God's spirit all day long. In every challenge that we face throughout the day. And we can involve him in the decisions that we're making. Knowing the truth and living by it, that's how the war will be won. Some are going to be taken captive by the devil. We saw that with uh, Paul talking about Hymenaeus and Alexander. But if they repent, if they come to their senses, then they can escape. 
and God will provide a way of escape. We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. Well, I'd like to provide, in the time that we have remaining, five combat keys. Five combat keys. We can include these in our battle plan going forward. And if we remember them, if we apply these points, we can face the inevitable challenges that will come our way. We can engage in effective spiritual combat because you and I are in a war. We need to never forget that. We have to remain vigilant. We have to be ready. We know we have an adversary that does not sleep. We are in a battle for our minds, as Dr. Winnell mentioned in his study topic. And we know we are spiritual warriors. The first combat key, the first combat key, turn your focus to God. Turn your focus to God. You know, something may happen that discourages us and our attention is drawn away from God's spirit and power. Maybe you've faced trials and you know you want to face the trial with courage. You want to face it with the things that you've been reading and studying. And yet, somehow, we're human and we get discouraged instead. We begin to think maybe we're all alone. And maybe God's not really concerned about us all that much. In the UK, in the United Kingdom, in the past two years, we've been going through a bit of a trial with an inquiry. And these things happen. We recognize they do. But when the process came to a point where it was somewhat at a fever pitch, we even had a face-to-face meeting with uh, three representatives of Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, and certainly an adversarial approach on the other side of the table. You know, through that... I'd like to say that I approached it with the best attitude right from the beginning. You know, I think God teaches us lessons through these things. And God did bring out in all of that, to all of us who were involved, the trust and the reliance and the confidence in the power of God. And that it is Christ who is leading his church. And we were going through that trial. It was difficult to see how it would come to a resolution. There were all kinds of what ifs. <laughs> Maybe you've done that in your life. But what if this happens and what if that happens? It just seemed to loom over what we were doing with no horizon in sight. And, you know, God does promise. He, he says, I'll, I'll provide a way of escape. 
But you know, sometimes you can't see that escape. And so then what does God provide? More faith. More faith in the trial. More faith in the trial so that you look to God even more. For me, and I think for others, it was a tremendous lesson to learn. A valuable lesson. We need more faith. I remember Dr. Meredith saying on numerous occasions, will you join me in this crusade of faith? Really focus on faith. Rock-solid confidence in God that it's all going to work out. And yes, we do. We're all in that crusade of faith. And when we face, and I will say this, that when we stepped off the plane uh, to come to Charlotte, I had the email in my inbox that said, the inquiry has been closed with no action in previous uh, uh, tax filings, no penalties, everything's done. All resolved. We have to let God fight our battles. Individually, but also as a church. And we have to trust that he can do it. When we face trials, we should focus on the lessons that we need to learn. We need to turn our focus to God and what he is doing, not on the trial itself. Our trials are not the only thing to bring suffering upon us, but our resistance to trials can also do that. Our resistance to the trials that we face can bring unnecessary suffering. You know, we we have to recognize that the trials that we have have God's stamp of approval. They've gone across his executive desk and he has given his divine approval. I don't know if that's actually how it happens, you know, so to speak. I don't think he has a big stamp. Yeah, that one's good for so-and-so. You know, Satan can't attack us without God setting the boundaries. We know that from the book of Job. God is helping us to develop character. He always does what's in our best interest, so we have to trust him. We need to focus on his plan for our lives. We know Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, that all things work together for good to those who are the called, who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. It's all going to work together. In Proverbs 24 and verse 16 tells us, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. They just lose battle after battle after battle because they're not learning the lessons. Mankind is writing the lessons in suffering, but they'll learn them later. We're going through trials and tests and we're going through them, but we're actually learning from them. We're building the character that God wants to see in us.
We know the old saying. Sometimes we, we might remind ourselves of it from time to time. Let go and let God. Let go and let God. Now, there's an acronym that is kind of easy to remember. And it says a lot. I think I read it in a book years ago. But uh, E-G-O. Ego. We all have, I think, an ego. At least how the psychologists define it. Ego. We're either edging God out or we're exalting God only. Edging God out or exalting God only. And it really comes down to the attitude that we have. Can God help you through the trials you're facing? Whatever trials those may be. Sometimes health trials, sometimes people problems, sometimes work problems, other things. We don't want to dwell on the negative thing. We don't want to dwell on the thing that's discouraging us. We have to replace those negative thoughts with positive thoughts to be able to have peace. And peace is a supernatural element of health. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. How can we go through the things we go through and still have those around us, maybe our family members or, you know, in the church or even outside the church or those in the community? How can they maybe know what we're going through? And still, we're smiling. We recognize God's in charge. God is in charge. We have to turn our focus to God and also be diligent to turn our focus away from things that we shouldn't be focusing on. In Psalm 119, Psalm 119 and verse 34. Psalm 119, verse 34. Give me understanding and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. And that's what the study of God's Word does. It makes us complete. It makes us mature. It fills in the gaps. (laughs) And we may have gaps in our maturity. I don't don't think any of us are are, uh, insulated from that. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. What was the problem of ancient Israel? They were craving, they had intense craving, lusting and covetousness. And it was stealing away their trust in God. And they were so consumed with that, they couldn't see the miracle that God was providing in the manna. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. And revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Is that where our heart is? A lot is said about what we set our affections on. What we set our affections on. I've heard it said before that Intellectual passion drives out sensuality. We know the wisdom, you know, demonic wisdom is sensual. 
If we have our mind on God's word, if we have our mind on things that really matter, if we're learning and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, then we will continue to push away those wrong things. The lusts of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Revive me in your righteousness. And so we need to work toward turning our eyes away from things that do not profit us spiritually. I don't think it's helpful to go through and give a whole laundry list of what those things might be. God is educating us. God is converting us. God is teaching our conscience to discern both good and evil. And sometimes if we neglect our conscience, we'll continue to entertain ourselves with worthless things. And so we have to be sensitive and we have to have that still small voice that says, I don't think I should be watching this. I don't think I should be listening to this. I don't think I should be uh, entertaining myself with that. That's not going to please God. In Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. How does God speak to us? Well, I've met with a lot of people interested in the church and they think God speaks directly to them. (laughs) And I have to encourage them that this is God's mind, this is God's revelation, and this is how he is conveying his thoughts and his will to us at this time. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. So we need to turn our focus to God. That's the first combat key that I'm talking about. But in doing so, here we're told, if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, the things that have to be taken out of our lives. The things that aren't going to remain in eternity. As of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. God is developing his holy, righteous character in us. But we have to turn to him in times of trial and battles that we face so that that character can be developed. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, the kingdom of God, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. 
We don't want to turn away from God. But we want to make sure that we remove those things that can be shaken. So that those things that can't be shaken will remain. The character that God desires to develop in us. And we have to do it with Him. We cannot develop it on our own apart from Him. We have to know God. He has to know us. And we have to work with Him through the process. In James chapter 4, and verse 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil. That's the battle. When we're tempted, we have to resist the devil. And he will flee from you. He's powerless whenever we exert free moral agency to not go down that road. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, we do that with fasting, in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. He will lift you up. We have this important Activity, ultimately, the actions, the routine that we have every day of drawing near to God. So we need to turn our focus to God. That's the first key. We need to turn our focus to God. The second key, keep your eyes on the goal. Keep your eyes on the goal. We can get discouraged and our eyes are directed elsewhere. We can begin to have tunnel vision instead of funnel vision. You know, they talk about that in England. In uh, driving, you're supposed to take in all the roads so that you see all the hazards. You have road awareness. And they say, if you get into template driving, you know, well, I know this is my way to work, and they just drive like, that's when accidents happen. You have to stay alert you have to have that funnel to bring in all of the possible hazards, all, all the you know uh, people that might step out uh, from behind a, a vehicle that's parked on the side of the road, bicycles that may be in the bicycle lane. In England, we have motorcycles, and they can go on either side at any time because they the only rule with motorcycles is basically keep the flow of traffic moving. You have to have a heightened sense of awareness. In the military, uh, special forces, they talk about situational awareness. You walk into the room, and you say, okay, there are three guys at the back, there's the exit, there's another exit back there. That's what they're trained to do. A heightened sense of awareness. We need that spiritually. But we can't have that without God's Spirit. That's the weapon we need in our mind, helping us to see the hazards A wise man foresees evil and hides himself. That's ongoing. That's not just when evil's around. No, that's all the time. It's vigilance against evil. We have to keep our eyes on the goal. Colossians 3.2 tells us, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And we're physical. We're human. We don't have those new spiritual bodies yet. And so we... Look to the around. And the physical seems very real. And yet it is so temporary. 
we have to keep our eyes on the goal. We turn our focus to God, then we get our minds on the goal. Your spiritual life is much more important than the physical. And so when we prioritize our lives, we put the spiritual first. That's why you wake up in the morning and make those first things first. When I was in business years ago, we talked about keeping the main thing the main thing. (laughs) If the main thing doesn't stay the main thing, uh, we're getting sidetracked and we're not going to arrive where we think we are. The trials and tests that we face from day to day can be a source of discouragement, especially when they go on for a long period of time or are intense or they're especially painful. We have to keep our eyes on the big picture on becoming a king and a priest in the kingdom of God. That's our training. That's what these trials are all about. That's what matters. We get there, no more tears, no more sorrows, no more doubt, no more discouragement, no more anxiety, no more adversary trying to throw obstacles in front of us to get us to swerve out of the way. That's what he does. He wants us to swerve. Matthew 6.33 Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And so we need to keep our eyes on the goal. We turn our focus to God and we get our minds on the goal. The big picture. The third combat key. The third combat key. Be positive. Be positive. We live in a world where there's so much happening. So much in the world today. We see vehicles being used as as destructive weapons. We see terrorism all around the world. There's all kinds of political and national divisions, strife, racial divisions, natural disasters, hurricanes this year. The forest fires burning, 122,000 acres burning up in California recently. Wars and rumors of war. In the news of late, the Iran-Saudi Arabia proxy war, they call it a cold war. But it's intensifying. It's intensifying. They don't believe that they will go to war, but it's making that area, again, extremely volatile. Even while ISIS, the Islamic State, is now somewhat a virtual state, they've lost their land. But will that be the end of them? It's still a powder keg. We see tensions between America and North North, uh, North Korea intensifying so much more now in the news we see how you know Moses told ancient Israel know this that surely your sins will find you out 
And now you have all these celebrities in Hollywood. And sure enough, with a statement to the the press, phone call, whatever it might be, it's coming out that there's been all this abuse in the past. These things are hard to hear. But this is the world we live in. Just recently, um, the Telegraph on the 8th of November of of, uh, this year, the headline, Germany must legally recognize third gender from birth. Top court rules. Current regulations on civil status are discriminatory against intersex people. That's individuals who are showing signs of having both male and female uh, biology. Legislators must, by the end of 2018, pass a new regulation to offer a third gender option in birth registers. And it was just back in June of this year when Germany legalized uh, homosexual marriage. And all these things are going to, some at some point, make a response We've got to stop this slide toward these kinds of things. The list goes on, but that's the world we're living in. And in the midst of all these societal and global conditions, we need to be strive to be in an attitude and spirit of positivity, of thankfulness. Again, ancient Israel. They had the manna. They had miracles. They had wonderful things happening. They had incredible deliverance from God. And yet they said, they just kept looking back saying, those were the good old days. And we can't look back. We have to go forward. And do you pray each day? Do you pray on your knees each day? And we need to be thanking God for who and what he is. We need to thank him for his mercy, for his love, for his grace, for his patience. For the way that he lovingly shows us things that we individually need to change. At least he does that for me. I I think he does that for you. I don't think my experience is unique in some way. God has shown me things that I need to change. And he does it in a way that, you know, I I just wouldn't probably do it that way if I were in his shoes, which I'm absolutely not. We just want to say, well, this is what you need to do. Do it. (laughs) Change. But God leads us through. He's so patient with us. He leads us through a process to where he helps us to see where we can change. And I think that, in at least in the ministry, I think that's a more effective way to do things. Not to just tell people, but help them arrive at things that hopefully they come to see they need to change. In Psalm 92... Psalm 92... In verse 1, now this particular psalm, it says, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. It says, it is good to give thanks to the eternal 
and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. It is good to give thanks to God. How much of our prayer is dedicated on giving thanks? That's how we can cultivate an attitude that is positive. It's a vital part of that. A vital part of that. Even in the midst of trial and test, if you go back to Romans, Romans chapter 8, even in the midst of all of that, the Apostle Paul helps us put things into perspective. Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. We're told, uh, or sorry, verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Absolutely. The suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory. It's hard to remember when we're in the midst of difficult times. But we have to turn our focus to God. We have to get our mind back on the goal. We have to remain positive. Mr. Ames has mentioned in a number of sermons his technique of telling himself maintain a positive and tranquil mind. And I, I'm from Missouri, the show me state. And I had to put that to test. And it does work. Maintain a positive and tranquil mind. There's something about that positive self-talk. Where you just, okay. <laughs> now I could just tell myself, keep calm and carry on. But I, I think maintaining a positive, you know, a tranquil mind is a little bit more effective. My favorite scripture is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I like it because it says all things. I don't see any exceptions, exclusions. Nothing is left out of the discussion. All things. If our relationship with God is nurtured, if it's healthy, if it's active, we can do all things. The fourth combat key. The fourth combat key. Do good to others. Do good to others. This is redirecting from the trial that we're presently in to the struggles that others may be facing. Back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. And verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's the mind of Christ. Christ said it's more blessed to give than to receive. We need to take our minds off the trials and the tests that we face individually and then focus on serving and helping others. And then God will make sure that everything else works out. He'll take care of us. He'll provide. Back in Matthew, the 25th chapter. Matthew. 
Matthew 25. And in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory at Christ's return. All nations, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And how what what prompts him saying that he continues verse thirty five for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. And so this approach of doing for Christ is what prompted that. But in verse 38 it says, when did you when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. You did it to me. When we serve one another, we are serving Christ. That's how Christ looks at it. That's how he views it. And ultimately, that's what... Uh, you know, we're storing up treasure in heaven in that way. And he's looking at those things and he, he takes note. That is Christ living his life in you. You allow him to do those works through you. And there will be a positive outcome when we do that. That's how we can fight these battles Does Satan like us to help one another? Does Satan like us to be positive? Does he like us to uh, forgive? And these kinds of things. No, he doesn't. He's against those things. In Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. In verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. How important is brotherly love at the end of the age? We know we're living in the Laodicean era. We know that the love of many will wax cold. And yet we need to have that Philadelphian spirit and attitude of brotherly love and care and concern for others. Do not forget to entertain strangers for By so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. I think about that in terms of individuals who may have physical uh, disabilities or even some widows who don't have a a close congregation. the, The living room where they sit all day can feel like a prison. They can feel alone. They can feel discouraged. And what does it mean to them to have the phone ring? 
What does it mean to them to have someone come by and sit with them for just a little bit and talk about the past, usually? Talk about the positive things that happened in their life, how God intervened. I think when you walk away from something like that, you're edified by it. You're strengthened by it. And so, it's good for both. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Well, we were talking earlier about covetousness, lust, intense craving, all these kinds of things. We have to put all that away. This world is passing away in the lust of it. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We don't want to get fearful about other people. God fights our battles. We don't have to be afraid. We we have courage. We have faith. Remember those who rule or lead. Those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow. Certainly right from Mr. Armstrong to Dr. Meredith and now to Mr. Weston, we follow those that God has placed in that role. Considering the outcome of their conduct, and there has been good fruit. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's right. Christ is leading his church. Christ is the head of his church. And we can follow him with confidence. Fifth battle key. We need to do good to others. But the fifth battle key is be patient. Be patient. Maybe we have the attitude at times, I don't have time to be patient. (laughs) We need more patience, don't we? Luke 21, 19 tells us, by your patience, possess your souls. You know, if you're acting on impulse, you're giving your life away. If you want to put it that way. We act on impulse. We don't take a patient approach, a wise approach. It's not going to work out well. We end up actually chasing behind ourselves, try to fix things. Just be patient. Think things through. Be wise about how you're conducting your daily activities. Satan wants to make us impulsive. He wants to get us discontent with what we have or how things are going. He did that in ancient Israel. Yeah, this man is terrible. And if you eat it for 40 years, (laughs) you start thinking you were never in bondage. That's what he does. He gets that discouragement in there, and then all these other things flow from it. It's been said that patience with others is love. Patience with self is hope. And patience with God is faith. We know that those are the three big ones. 
faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Back in Psalm 31. Psalm 31. If we find ourselves in difficult times, go to the Psalms. Go to the Psalms. Just start reading three or four of them a day. You just can't imagine the cumulative effect that that has on your frame of mind. There is strong encouragement and comfort in the Psalms. Psalm 31 and verse 22. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. See, this is David saying, I said in my haste, don't be hasty, don't be impulsive. I said in my haste, I'm cut off from before your eyes. This despair that Moses found himself in. Maybe at times we find ourselves in that. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. Interesting that God hears the complaints even in the tents of ancient Israel. But he also hears the supplications when we cry out to him. God hears. It's one of his names. The God who hears. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. Oh, love the eternal, all you his saints. For the eternal preserves the faithful. And fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. All you who hope in the eternal. Be of good courage. Have hope in God. Be patient. We know from Hebrews chapter 12 that God does at times correct us as a loving father. Some haven't had uh, fathers that corrected them in the right way, uh, providing an explanation and making the the uh, punishment in that way fit the crime. <laughs> Sometimes it's been extreme. It's hard for people that have been through that kind of situation to accept correction. They just lock up. <laughs> they don't want to be corrected. We have to be able to accept correction. And that indeed is, it says a lot about our character. We need to make sure that we're humble. We humble ourselves through fasting. And in that fasting, I've found that when I come out of a fast, I feel more patient. It's like the winds kind of wind down. And I'm able to see the road a little bit clearer. I'm able to then define what the battles are and recognize the response that God wants to see from me in that battle to gain the victory. Some may feel like giving up at times. You know, Moses certainly did. You know, Job's attitude was, though he slay me, yet... Will I trust him? Now we know Job still had lessons to learn. His trust was not complete. 
And Satan can plant doubts about our conversion, about our worth, about our probability for salvation. He is the great discourager. But you know, you haven't failed unless you have just quit trying. And we will at times fail, but we're not failures. We're going to win in the end. We're going to gain the inevitable victory, as Dr. Meredith liked to quote Winston Churchill. He did that time and again in his sermons because it's encouraging. He wanted to strengthen all of us to continue with faith and courage, especially in these end times. So, brethren, let's do our part to combat Satan's influence, the pressures from the society all around us, as we also have human nature that still remains a challenge for us daily. Let's remember these five combat keys to turn our focus to God, to keep our eyes on the goal, to be positive, to do good to others, and to be patient. Patient with others, having love with uh, with ourselves, having hope, and with God, exhibiting that faith that is so precious to Him. You and I have been called to spiritual combat, and we must fight the good fight of faith. We heard that in the special music today, and we've talked about it in the sermon. We need to be careful with the thin edge of the wedge, the discouragement, the negativity that opens the door to all of Satan's other devices. With Christ living in us, we can overcome, we can conquer We can ready ourselves. We can have that heightened sense of awareness as we go forward to be able to face the trials, the challenges that we're going to inevitably face. And if we do that, then we will have an awesome reality, an awesome reality, an opportunity in the future to live and work with God forever and ever.